Hey, welcome to night school. I've talked on here before about there's a certain sort of person who thanks NASA for space. When they think about space or they see photos of space, they're like, thanks, NASA. Thanks, NASA. And it's part of this whole, like, thanks, thanks, science. Don't thank me. Thanks, science. Don't thank me, baby. Thank, thank science. You know, it's, it's this way of thinking where it's almost like giving the scientific process, but really they're not focused on the process. They're not focused on the method. But you're you're giving credit for something to a process that is just one way of looking at that thing. So it's like science is a way of examining nature. It's a way of modifying nature, manipulating nature. But it starts out, you know, from a place of observation. And because it allows you to observe nature in a certain way, people have this tendency to start thinking of nature itself as a, I don't want to say a byproduct, but somehow there's this belief in the world today that's actually very common that nature depends on science in some way. That might be a better way of phrasing it. It's not that people see nature as a byproduct of science, but they believe nature depends on science. They believe that space depends on NASA. And because of that, they can't separate any of these ideas. I would be willing to bet that the average, at least Western person, at least the average American believes that you can't have space without NASA. You can't have space without NASA. And if you were to really corner somebody, I don't know why you would do that, but if you were to really corner somebody who has that sort of attitude, they would probably say like, oh yeah, of course, of course I recognize that space is this independent entity. And when I thank NASA... I'm just I'm thanking NASA for the for the telescopes. I'm thanking NASA for the rockets getting shot out into space. I'm thanking NASA for the astronauts, the astronauts. Of course I understand that space doesn't belong to NASA. Well, I think if you actually broke it down, people I I don't think people are stupid. But in a casual sense, the way they talk, the direction our culture, or at least large parts of our culture, has headed is into this world where the things we use to examine aspects of our world are given almost responsibility for that thing existing at all, maybe even given credit. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at when I'm talking about the person who thanks NASA for space. And you see this sometimes. There's, there's this kind of jokey science humor. And you see it from all kinds of people. People I like, people I don't like, people I feel nothing about. People I feel nothing about. You know, you hear it from all kinds of different people. And sometimes it's this sort of like, you ever think about how... I mean, there's that sort of Joe Rogan, like, you ever think about how we're... 
how, how the Earth is a spaceship and we're traveling at 90 billion trillion uh, miles per hour, flying through a black void that's lit up by other random things and we're circling a giant burning thing that's bigger than anything we can possibly comprehend. Because, I mean, I think that stuff that stuff's worth thinking about sometimes. And, I mean, every once in a while, I will have one of those moments. Like, there was a, a moment, probably last year, where I was, I was walking at night. And I was looking up at the stars. It was a particularly clear night. And I got this very firm sense of the fact that I was walking on a a rolling ball. A roll, I'm walking on a rolling ball. Now I got a I, I you know while there was obviously no physical sensation I had a very strong mental sensation that that's what I was doing. And of course you don't feel that normally. You don't feel that when you're just in your spot on planet Earth. But you know, sometimes you do get a sense. And so I'm not talking shit. I'm not talking shit on like that sort of like you ever think about how we're on a we're on a spaceship made of dirt traveling at 90 billion trillion billion 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 dollars or not not dollars my jokes are just running into each other miles per hour cuz normally when i'm talking about a trillion billion billion i'm talking money as most of us are when most of us bring up a trillion billion a billion million trillion billion when we get very specific about large sums like that, we're talking about money. But in this case, we're talking about speed. And you know, the two things I like the most are speed and money. So the fact that I can use similar numbers to talk about both of those things, well, hey, I'm, I'm set. I'm happy. A trillion, billion, million, billion miles per hour. No, but I, I'm not talking shit on somebody who just takes a moment to think about that sometimes, assuming you believe it. I like that idea of just being like, I don't even believe that. Because I think there is something noble in some of these conspiracy theories, as they're often called. I do think there is something noble in committing yourself to something like flat earth theory, and it's not worth talking about on here. It's not. I don't want this to be another show where it's like, have you ever heard of flat earth theory? Can you believe what these people are saying? Can you believe what they think? I don't want this to be that type of show. Flat earth, honestly, flat earth theory isn't even interesting to me. One way or another. Like, it's not interesting enough for me to fight it. It's not interesting enough for me to encourage it. But I do think there is something noble in committing yourself to quite literally a world view. I mean, people talk about having a world view. Flat Earth theory is at the very least a world view by its definition. They are literally viewing the world differently. And I think there is something noble to that. To being given so much information, to be given so, ma so much imagery. Like speaking of Nasser, speaking of Nasser, uh, they give you images of the space, man. They give you images of everything. And I mean, there was a video I saw, probably something very popular everybody's heard of, but I just became aware of this, where there's somebody who takes Indian villagers, and by Indian I mean uh, 
India. They take villagers from India and they show them video clips. And I haven't quite decided how many of these I want to see. But there's one where they show these villagers. They keep like, they basically they show these villagers like Earth. They show these villagers diagrams and images of Earth. And then they show them the galaxy. Then they show them the sun. They show they, they basically keep zooming out. And the goal is to blow these villagers' minds at every step of this video. Like every time a new diagram is introduced, the idea is to blow the villagers' minds. And of course it does. Like there's an old man, there's a couple younger guys. And the old man is just like, <gasps> you know, they're gasping. Because it's like, you think the galaxy is big? Well, this galaxy is part of a billion, trillion, billion galaxies. And those are part of a, a, they're part of a mega galaxy that's comprised of another trillion, billion. And of course, anybody who hasn't been exposed to that kind of information, I mean, even I, you know, even sitting there, it's not like I'm, it's not like my mind is completely closed. Like I was sitting there watching that video and I don't remember the last time that somebody broke down how all of the galaxies are part of a mega galaxy, which is part of a super galaxy. I don't remember the last time somebody broke all that down for me, if ever. So I was sitting there like, wow, this is, it's amazing to think about something that is truly beyond your comprehension. It's not like I don't think people should talk about these things or be excited by them. I guess I just try not to rest on them too much. I try not to let my, my worldview be too influenced by these things but seeing these villagers get their minds blown what was interesting is at the end they were like well this just proves to me that god is real because someone could be like oh no it's this is going to ruin their minds they're going to stop believing in hinduism this is going to blow their minds it's going to challenge all of their beliefs but it actually reinforced them which is interesting it's interesting that them seeing these videos of galaxies within galaxies and the limitless, incomprehensible, you know, nature of our universe, you know, of course that's going to um, excite people and get their minds going. But it was interesting that these guys just reinforced their existing faith, which it should, you know, I mean, I don't see what, how any of this stuff takes, you know, it's like, I don't know if this goes on that much anymore, but in the first decade of the 2000s, I feel like I was continually coming up against intelligent design versus evolution arguments. Like I even, it happened in college where, of course it happened in college, but we watched a, some sort of documentary and the, the whole point of the documentary, I don't, I don't even know what it was called. I'm guessing it was something fairly well known because it's not like the college professors were really like digging in the archives for obscure documentaries so it's probably something that a lot of people have seen but one of the points of the documentary was clearly to make a mockery out of intelligent design and it had that sort of daily show vibe where it's like you're interviewing somebody but with this blatant mockery of them and I know in that case it's heavily edited to make it as awkward and dumb as possible let's see what we can do 
You know, it's funny, people get obsessed with this idea that reality TV is fake. Reality TV is heavily edited. People are really hung up on that one. Did you know reality TV is fake? Did you know they edit it? Like, did you know the Daily Show is fake? Because I remember, like, back in the day, like, having to watch the Daily Show with uh, a girlfriend and people. There's all the, there's always hostage situations where you're forced to watch the Daily Show. And this is before I was even, you know, I, I was always a reactionary in, on some level, but this is before I was as invested which might be a good thing or a bad thing, probably a little of both. But I do remember watching The Daily Show in, let's say, like 2007 and just thinking like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, just not being sold on what they were trying to do, I guess is what I'm getting at here. Because, you know, just picking up on the fact that those awkward interviews they do with, oh, we're going to interview this Republican lawmaker. Oh, we're going to do an interview with a Republican lawmaker who believes that men and women shouldn't be in the same room together. And then they edit it to like have all these awkward pauses and you could just tell that it was heavily edited for comedic effect maybe. But it's no different than just what they do with reality shows or any television, anything really. Anything that edits anything. Any kind of editing to me is the same (laughs) any editing makes something less real I mean and that's just the truth too I mean that's one of the reasons why I don't edit this show or if I do it's very very rarely and very very little it really it has to be some sort of technical issue in just about every case because I don't want this show to be edited editing makes it less real not to say there isn't a time and a place for editing a time and a place for things that are less real. But that idea of like the Daily Show interview. Look at how stupid this person is. But anyway, point being, in college they made us watch this documentary about like intelligent design versus evolution at the Evergreen State College. I wonder what side of the fence the Evergreen State College faculty were on. Intelligent design or evolution. But I remember them making a mockery of intelligent design, and it didn't seem unintelligent to me at the time. Because I had never even been introduced to intelligent design. Like, I'd, I'd heard about it vaguely. I don't know when that phrase was coined. But it was something... It, basically, it was people who were trying to reconcile science and religion which it turns out people have been doing forever. I mean, a lot of scientists were religious. A lot of scientists were priests, heavily involved in the Catholic Church. You know, those two things were heavily correlated up to a certain point. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, people like that, were scientists too. But when those ideas became separated, when the idea of religion and science became separated... You can see where like ideas like intelligent design came about, where it was like, here's a way of reconciling these. Here's a way of not outright denying what we can observe in nature through the scientific method, using the scientific method. We're not going to outright reject that, but we're going to come up with maybe an alternative explanation for why things came to be that is more deliberate. 
And the big one was people would say, oh, well, why are bananas shaped the way they are? Why do bananas fit a human hand perfectly? That's one of the arguments that you see from intelligent design, but it's also because it's such a, a simple argument and it sounds silly to say it. Well, why do bananas hit the why do why do bananas fit the human hand if God didn't design the world for us? You know, that argument does sound absurd when you just say it outright, but it's not a horrible argument unto itself. Because, I mean, you can take that and say, like, why does everything fit together? Why does everything work the way it does? There is an intelligence to this process, not intelligence in a strictly human sense, but an intelligence in that there is a logic to the whole system of nature. Where, yeah, you can say, oh, why does a banana fit a human hand perfectly if there's no God? But you can look at nature itself and say, why is it that these dying things fuel the living things who then go on to die? You know, why is it that, you know, certain animals have certain characteristics that allow them to extract this one nutrient from nature in a highly specific way that keeps them alive? You know, I mean, you could really focus on just about anything. Any kind of natural phenomenon, natural phenomena, and feel this way about it. And people who are preoccupied with this whole, like, science is everything. Science is good, man. Science is good. People who are kind of preoccupied where that's kind of their baseline philosophy of just, thank you, science. Thanks, science. People who kind of come from that point of view would say, like, well, the reason why uh, the hummingbird has such a long beak is so that it can it, it evolved to extract nectar. The reason the human hand fits a banana perfectly, the reason a banana perfectly fits the human hand is because the human hand evolved to better grip bananas. I don't know if that's the working theory. But it tends to be entirely a focus on the process. And then when that process reveals certain things, we have a tendency to thank the process as if the process created the very thing that process is observing or messing around with, tinkering with, as they say. They call it tinkering. You want to you wanna talk about what scientists do in their labs? The big labs, they tinker. No, but it is one of those things where there's this tendency to focus on the process that allows you to observe that thing or give it a name. And I mean, this gets into the a weird dilemma that I personally have because on one hand, I'm always talking about my own obsession with language, my belief in the power of words, the power of names, as I've been saying for years, Simply having the name you do is going to shape you in some way. The fact that you respond to a certain noise. What's really funny about that point, I've been making that point for years. Before I even had a podcast, I met a guy named Eric, who was a friend of a friend. And I tried to have a conversation with him. I was like, don't you feel like we are different 
because we both have the name Eric and we've been responding to that. Even just the, the, the basic phonetics, the fact that we have been responding to that specific sound, that we can hear something that even just sounds like our name, Eric, and it causes us to react, it causes us to respond, to look in the direction that the sound came from, because they, they might have been saying Eric. You know, and it's true for everybody who has a given name. I saw a guy that I, I'm familiar with, he's a kind of a comedy guy, make that same exact point. And he said it in almost the same exact words that I've been using for it for forever. And it's like, of course, somebody else, especially somebody else that I find funny or interesting, is going to discover the same thought. You know, there's only so many thoughts that a person can have. But I, it, it made me think. I was like, did this guy see my show? Did this guy hear my show? This guy who's way more well-known than I am. It's like I'm, I'm becoming like the, the Pantera killer. Like the guy who, or the damage, excuse me, the damage plan killer. The guy who killed Dimebag Daryl. For whatever reason, that event's, like, I, not, not even like I'm some Pantera mega fan, not even close, but just for whatever reason, that whole situation just was like burned into my brain. The guy who killed Dimebag Daryl. I guess, you know, part, not to get too deep into that, but... I remember someone telling me the news one night. I got a message when that happened. They just said like, oh man, I can't believe what happened. And I was like, what? And they're like, a guy got on stage and killed Dimebag Daryl at a damage plan show. And I was just like, wait, what? What? But anyway, with that, you know, the guy who did it, he claimed that Pantera had stolen lyrics from him. Like he had written lyrics in his diary at home and he said that Pantera had stolen them from him. Maybe you were just on the same wavelength as Pantera, dude. You know, maybe you were just, uh, you know, you're obviously a Pantera fan. I think I, I think it's safe to say that Pantera has a certain way of talking. I think they have a certain way of phrasing things. Maybe you just listened to so much Pantera that you started thinking like Pantera. And they didn't steal your lyrics. You just started to think like Pantera and thought they were stealing from you. It's, I mean, it's a pretty common mental delusion you know when someone has a, a serious mental issue a common delusion is that someone was stealing from them they took something from them especially an idea and I understand that completely like even though it takes a, a whole other level of mental deterioration or illness whatever it is you want to say to turn that sort of uh, feeling like something was taken from you like to turn that into violence you know, that's something else entirely, but we all feel that way constantly. And it's that endless pursuit of jewels that I'm always bringing up, which is we like to feel like we found something and it's ours. Whether it's something we find out in the world, whether it's music, whether it's movie, whether it's a, a hole in the wall restaurant, we like to find things and feel like it's ours. And that's especially true with ideas that we think. Like, if you come up with a joke on your own and you hear somebody else make that same joke, even though that person, in many cases, could not have had any way of stealing it from you, unless they were there with you and your friends or they can read your mind, there's no way they, can, they, they could have stolen that idea or that joke from you. When you hear them do it, there's a part of you that thinks, like, they took that from me. They took it. They took my joke. 
when the reality is, is that there's nothing new under the sun and you're going to stumble upon some of the same things somebody else did, whether that person is living, dead, or that, whether that other person will come to be. And so anyway, I was seeing this guy, this more well-known guy, not an ultra-celebrity, but just a guy that I've paid attention to for many years, to hear him talking about my theory, my theory about names, that hearing yourself referred to with the same name your entire life shapes you. And, you know, unfortunately, excuse me, excuse me, um, unfortunately, there's no way to measure that. Unfortunately, there's not a control group. There's not like a, a control version of you with a different name. It's like, oh, we, we've taken two twins. I guess twins are sort of a form of that. Twins are the closest we'll get to that, to, that, to being like, you're going to look the same, act the same, but we're going to give you different names. And just having a different name will shape you in some way because you are responding your entire life to a different sound than that person. And some names sound terrible. And this is what that guy said. He was saying, you know, responding to certain names makes you worse off. Like if your name has sort of an annoying sound to it, you're worse off for that. But anyway, point being just that I heard him saying this and I was like, did he somehow hear what I've been saying for the last 15 years? I know it's come up on this show, but I'm like, did he somehow hear this show? Or maybe he's just somebody who has some of the same points of references, who thinks about some of the same sorts of things. But I did feel a little, uh, I did feel, I guess I'd say jewel hurt. I think that's what I'm going to start saying. Like, when, when you think that you've come up with something or you think you found something, when you think you can kind of put your name on something and then you find that somebody else discovered it on their own, it hurts you. No matter how mature you are, no matter how far along you are, no matter how unique you are, there's this part of you that when you find that somebody else stumbled upon a thought that you thought was original to you, and it doesn't mean it's not original, because I mean, you can have an original thought that someone else also has. And that's sort of why an original thought will resonate with someone else. It's why a comedian will make a joke, an observational joke, that that other person in the audience has never thought of before. But when the comedian verbalizes it, that person immediately knows what it is because they've had a sense for it. They've had a similar thought at some point. They just might not have broken it down and put it into words correctly. And that's basically what an epiphany is. You know, that's why when we hear something that makes us truly just open up and laugh, when something actually makes you just bust out laughing, that's an epiphany too. An epiphany isn't just something that makes you go, oh, wow, I feel, I feel so much wiser. I learned something. It's not only that. It's also something that makes you crack up. That's all, to me, all of those things are part of the epiphanous experience it's anytime that something activates something in you and you didn't necessarily choose it but you understand there's a basic truth to it and it resonates with you so you know laughing very hard at a joke or hearing something put into words for the first time that finally helps you understand kind of a sense or a feeling you've always had but haven't been able to verbalize. And in not being able to verbalize it, 
it hasn't quite resonated with you as fully as it could have, but you, it's, it's been there. It's like the seed of that thought has been there. It just took somebody else to really bring it out and help it bloom. But what I was going to get into is just talking about how I put all this importance on language. I do believe like if you have a certain name that that shapes your personality. I'm obsessed with words and words have a lot of value and non-value like there are words that I hate and there are words that I absolutely love there's words that I'm obsessed with so it's it's interesting to me that that's one of my beliefs that words have all of this value but yet I have this other belief that words are just placeholders they're completely transitory you can't get too attached to them. So I, do I need to reconcile those two thoughts? The idea that words have this immense value and importance and this idea that they have none whatsoever and they're just arbitrarily created and we turn them into these institutions where we can't separate the word from the idea and we think the idea depends on the word. I don't think I have to reconcile anything. I think it's just a reality that we live with where you can't deny the power of language and words, but you have to kind of constantly go back and forth between that and recognizing that they're all arbitrarily created. And that's especially true when you get into the sciences. Like, think about the way that we name a star or another planet. And it's almost impossible for you as a human who has been raised in the society you've been raised in to look at the planets and separate them from their names. Maybe just as an exercise, try it. I've never tried it. Just try to go about your life and forget the names of the planets. Be aware of them, but think about them exactly as they are without some human prescribed name. Just think about them as the entity that they are. Don't think about the way, don't think about the photographs NASA takes, even though they're very incredible to look at. You know, even though that process is incredible, this process that allows us to see details in space that we would never otherwise even imagine as human beings walking the earth. Take all that in, but forget about all the words we use for them. You know, forget about the words we use for planets and just focus on the entity. Get away from the word planet, even. Just get away from everything. I think it's good to be able to do that. And with uh, the idea, though, of... Uh, well, the idea that, you know, NASA is somehow responsible for space... That without NASA, we don't have space. I understand the idea of without NASA or similar programs, we wouldn't have the ultra-high-definition photos of the sun's surface, which are incredible to look at. Like, if you've seen those up-close, relatively up-close, I mean, not, not too close, obviously, but those up-close photos of the sun where you see like little flames just like shooting out and they're not little, like these little flames are bigger than the earth, but these little flames just like breathing in and out of the sun's surface. It's beyond our comprehension. 
we can almost comprehend it because we know it's fire and we know it's hot. But you start thinking about like, what's behind all that fire anyway? What's underneath all those flames? There's like little tongues of flame, tongues of fire that just like shoot out from the sun's surface. Something we could never understand just from here. So it is incredible that we have the technology and you know, scientific institutions that give us that. We don't need it. Like, my life doesn't require that. My life would be fine if I didn't know what plant, you know, what Pluto looked like. My life would be totally fine. But I do think that process is cool. I think the process of observing and examining these massive cosmic elements is interesting. And you can thank the institutions who allow that. But you have to be careful you don't start thanking the institutions for the very thing they're observing. And I think we have reached that point where that's what we do. Just a sec here. I do have a little vape pen right now. Trying to avoid having one all the time because it makes me sick half the time. Those things make me feel sick half the time. They make me feel either really good, make me feel like I'm thinking very clearly, like I'm operating clearly, or they can make me feel nauseous for just, seems like it's endless once it kicks in. Uh, but anyway, you know, thanking the process or thanking the institution that facilitates that process for the thing they're observing, it's just kind of weird. It's like thanking a zoo for the animals. Oh, you know, without you, sure, I never would have gotten to see a tiger up close like this. But you didn't create the tiger. The tiger isn't more interesting because a zoo put them in a pen and allows you to get close to them, to see them through plexiglass. And there are obviously some moral and ethical questions to that. Where a zoo can be a place of horror. I mean, a zoo can be an awful prison for animals. Like those old New York zoos, where it's just like a, a lion in a concrete cage with nothing. Or worse, you know, there's worse than that. But, uh, which we don't need to get into. But yeah, you have those where it's like, you know, zoo isn't necessarily good because it gives you access to the animals, because it allows you to see animals up close that you would otherwise never see in the wild. You would never see in person. But it, is, it didn't create the animal, you know, just because it allows you to see them. And it's not necessarily good. You can see where zoos have done horrible things to animals. You can see where the very idea of a zoo opens up some moral and ethical questions. Because on one hand, you have these like rehabilitation zoos these days. Nowadays, if you go to a zoo, there's all these signs where they're like, they're here because we're rehabilitating them. They're here because there were very few of them in the wild and we're protecting them, which makes sense. You know, I understand the logic of that. You know, there's zoos that do what they do with the animal's interest in mind, apparently, as much as they can understand the animal's interest. But there are zoos that operate that way. And even those, though, there are moral and ethical questions about keeping an animal locked up. I mean, there's moral and ethical questions about having a pet. 
not that you need to burden yourself with those questions, but just it is something to consider. And while, you know, with, with space and NASA, we're, I don't know, you know, we're not talking about locking planets up in pens. We're not talking about, I don't know, it, it doesn't have the same set of ethical questions as like a zoo, but I do feel it's similar in a certain way. And you wouldn't thank the zoo for the existence of the animal, just like you wouldn't thank NASA for the existence of a star or a planet. And maybe this sounds ridiculous to somebody, like nobody out there is thanking NASA for space. And I would say just pay attention. Pay attention to people's worldview these days. And you'll see that there are, are many people who are thanking NASA for space. They're thanking science for nature. And I always have to point out that science, at least scientific institutions, because talking about science, like painting some broad brunch, brunch, painting some broad brush, you know, when, when talking about, you know, the scientific method, that's not useful to me or anybody else because I have no interest in demonizing or even criticizing the scientific method. It is what it is, is how I see it. But it doesn't create anything. Even when it does. <laughs> it doesn't create anything even when that's the exact thing it's doing. Even when it's developing something in a lab. Even when it's cloning something. I still don't feel that it's being truly creative. I feel like it's still being manipulative. And the process, the method, doesn't require manipulation. I mean, someone can simply observe and be as much of a scientist as someone who really gets in there and manipulates genomes, whatever that means. It could be as, de it could be as involved or uninvolved as the given person wants it to be. But there's this idea that Getting involved at all is virtuous. There's this idea in large parts of our culture today that anybody who wants to get involved using the scientific method is doing it for reasons of virtue. And if it's scientific, it must be good. It must be noble. We've got to listen to them. There's a scientist here. Listen to him. Oh, you think you're smarter than the scientist? Huh? You think you're smarter than a scientist? Huh? You don't have to listen to him. And I think there's a set of you know ethical and moral dilemmas within that, within the idea of being a scientist. In the same way, there's a built-in moral, moral or ethical, now known as moral. In the same way that there's a moral or ethical debate to be had there, I'd say the same is true for... Anything you're doing that interferes with or manip manipulates something else, especially a process that has been developed in nature by nature. And I don't feel that there's enough pushback 
Or if there is pushback, it comes from the wrong place. It comes from a place of trying to prove something else. Because, I mean, that's what you see from, you know, neo-conservative evangelical Christian types where the idea is that we need to stop science from manipulating our world or coloring our understanding of the world because it interferes with our belief. And we actually want to use our belief to do the same thing to other people. So that doesn't work for me. And the whole intelligent design thing, I don't know when that phrase came about. Like I said, I don't know when that idea was first introduced. But it was a way of kind of trying to reconcile science and religion and explain it in terms that didn't betray Christianity. And beyond the fact that, you know, some of the points that intelligent design proponents, you know, beyond the fact that some of the points they make are kind of silly, the banana fits in my hand. You know, beyond that, I don't disagree with the idea. I don't disagree with the idea that even if you believe in evolutionary biology, even if you believe that the world as we see it today is the product of evolution, even if you believe we, did, we started as amoebas and we you know, adapted and that's why we see the world as it is today, I don't think that that is necessarily at odds with creationism, depending on the level of detail you want to get into. Like, obviously, there are creationists who say, like, you know, man was created exactly as he is today. God created everything exactly as it is today. It didn't evolve to its current state. Whereas the intelligent design approach is more along the lines of, like, We can believe in all of that, but we trace it all back to God either way. Whether we were amoebas or whether we were created exactly as we are today, it traces back to God. God did it either way. It's basically the intelligent, it's basically what intelligent design boils down to when you get away from all the examples, when you get away from, you know, all the work that people have put into trying to make this make sense and promote it. It basically boils down to, Attributing the origin to God or not. And if you attribute the origin of everything to God, well, then everything else that, every process that plays out after that is also part of God's plan, part of his design, hence intelligent design. But you do see a logic to it. That You do see a logic to the world, and that logic doesn't depend on you. Like that logic does not depend on the human scientific interest. Maybe noticing it, maybe understanding what is actually happening when a bee, you know, pollinates a flower. Maybe it requires science to actually really get in there and understand what's going on when a bee does that. But the bee still does it. You know, the bee is still doing that whether you investigate or not. And, you know, I think the the side of science that I relate to the most is the observational side. Where we're just going to watch this anthill. 
and see what happens. But we're not going to actually stick any, we're not going to stick a camera into the anthill. We're not going to interfere in the anthill. We're going to observe it to understand it better. But that's not without interference too. I mean, the act of simply, it's like observer theory. Whether you think observer theory is real or not, I mean, it's very difficult to know whether observer theory is real because it's it's based on the idea that simply watching something fundamentally changes that thing. I mean, it's not too different from my idea about names. Observer theory just takes it to a whole other level. Like here I am with names saying like, yeah, if you if you hear the, the sound Eric over and over again for 35 years... That's going to change the way you function in a way that, you know, I don't know. It's going to, it's going to affect the way you live your life in some way. Whereas somebody who hears a different name or a different sound, especially if it's something that sounds silly, you got a silly name, you might be a different person slightly. Because so many of the things that influence us are slight influences. They're slight influences. So if you hear the same name over and over again, hey, maybe it shapes you in some way. But I, I like the observer theory takes that same sort of logic, and it's like simply watching something changes it. Somebody simply watching you changes you. And I mean, I think our own experience is is some sort of proof of observer theory. Where if you think there's even the slightest possibility that somebody is watching you, your behavior shifts. And not in some paranoid way like you think that everybody's just sitting there watching you. But if you think that there's even the possibility that somebody could, out of the corner of their eye, be watching you right now, you're going to be a little more self-conscious. And I mean, I think a great example is like, if I'm on like a late night binge eating tear, or just eating in general, it doesn't even have to be one of my late night binge eating tears. It's a tear. So what's a tear? No, it doesn't even have to be that. If I'm just uh, you know in public eating, if I think that somebody is watching me, or I, I even think there's a possibility that somebody is watching me, I'm going to behave a little bit differently. And I mean, to go back to the binge eating thing, like the way that I will sit there and just binge eat, it's the most disgusting thing in the world. And there are all kinds of embarrassing situations I would rather someone see me in than that. Like I would rather somebody accidentally like see in my window and see me like walk by naked than to see me binge eating. I would, you know, in some cases, maybe even I'd rather them see me in the bathroom. I'd rather them see me going to the bathroom than to be seen binge eating late at night. Because when I'm doing that, my eyes are glossed over. I'm like reaching. I'm doing these automatic movements. I probably have bad posture. Because when you binge eat, you don't have good posture. Chances are your like back is hunched. <laughs> Chances are your back is hunched. Chances are you're just, you probably look as gross as the thing you're doing is. Like you probably meet the action that you're doing at its own level, where it's like binge eating is this disgusting thing to do, gorging yourself, just stuffing things into your face. 
Your eyes get kind of glossed over. You kind of get shark eyes. You're not thinking intellectually. I don't care what kind of intellectual you are. I don't care if you're a college professor. I don't care if you're a man of science. In that moment when you're sitting there binge eating, you are disgusting. And I believe that your body language shows that. But anyway, this isn't about binge eating. It's just about the fact that if I knew somebody was watching me, I probably wouldn't do it. Like if I had a roommate or just a loved one. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a time where I've been like with a girlfriend or a friend or anybody where we get stoned or no matter what the circumstances are that would allow you to want, you know, whatever whatever you're doing under normal circumstances, being alone, you know, it might lead you to binge eat. Like, oh, I'm staying up late watching, I'm binge watching, so I'm going to binge eat. And I'm getting high, I'm getting high. You know, it's like that sort of thing where where it's it's like under normal circumstances, if I were alone, I would be just stuffing my face. I would I would just feel disgusting for the next 36 hours based on what I'm doing right now. But when you're with somebody, when you know that somebody is observing you, you don't do that. Like, I've never sat there with a girlfriend and been like, oh, we're getting stoned binge-watching shows. I'm going to show her how disgusting I can truly be, even if I want that, even if we have food. I'm not going to do it because I don't want somebody to see me in that state. I don't want somebody to see me do that. But the same is true even just like in public, like I'm saying, where it's like even just eating in a restaurant. You know, it's not like everybody in the restaurant is staring at you, but there's a possibility that they could. There's a possibility that somebody could see you. And I mean, getting away from food, it's anything. Food is just one that jumps out to me where if you know somebody is potentially observing you, you're going to be much more dignified. Your manners are going to be better. You're going to be less messy, maybe. Maybe other people don't think about that at all. Maybe they don't care at all. I do. And so that's just a simple way that observer theory is true, where I myself change my behavior, not just when I'm being watched, but when I think there's even the possibility that somebody could be watching me. And observer theory plays more on you know inanimate objects. Because you could say, oh, well, of course you as a conscious human being are going to act differently when you think somebody might be watching you. And, you know, you know, I understand it's a whole jump to say like inanimate objects or objects that don't have consciousness as we understand it, like plants or trees. You know, it's kind of, it's a jump to go from, because you act different when you think somebody might be watching you eat. That means that a plant is going to act different when it thinks you're watching it. Or a a trash can is going to act differently. But people have a hard time with that. People, And rightfully so. People have a hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that you can potentially change something, even an inanimate object, something with no life in it, that you can somehow change that just by noticing it or observing it. 
you know, that's pretty out there. And I wouldn't be able to break down why that makes sense to me. But, uh, you know, I'll think about that one a little more. Not that I'm some major proponent of observer theory. I just believe there's something to it. Like if you're staring at a, like somebody threw a couch on the street they're getting rid of. I don't believe that like looking at that couch means that the couch starts changing. Like the atoms of that couch start rearranging themselves. I don't even mean that. I mean, maybe it gets into like some sort of, like just simply the act of being there changes the entire situation. I don't know. I don't don't really want to keep going on this thought. But the idea is just basically that you observing something potentially changes it. And it's the issue that scientists run into continually because if you're just standing there watching an anthill, do you know that those ants are behaving in the same way they would if you weren't standing there close enough to observe it? You never really know. So this stuff, it can kind of never be proven or disproven. And the scientific method, of course, looks for patterns. And when it finds evidence, it's usually evidence of a pattern more than a specific instance. At least by the time you hear about it. But if something can't be placed into a pattern, it tends to be rejected or held with some level of skepticism. Because, I mean, science depends on something being reproducible. It's observing reproducible phenomenon. So if a phenomenon isn't reproducible, science by its very nature, by the very way it's designed, the scientific method, can't do much with it. Except label it pseudoscience. Because we cannot reproduce this in the exact same way, we're just going to dismiss it or kind of isolate it and view it with skepticism. Just how it is. I'm not even saying they shouldn't do that. I'm not even saying that scientists shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that is what they do. And personally, on a personal level, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't agree with the idea that something has to be reproducible, that we have to be able to see a pattern emerge before we're able to really do something with it. But going back to, you know, thanking NASA for space. Pay attention to that in your own life because chances are you're doing it about something. Chances are you're giving credit to something that may have helped give you a glimpse, but it didn't create the thing you're observing. And for whatever reason, we as human beings tend to rest on the process. And I talk a lot about the process on here. I talk a lot about how these big, grand ideas like love, God, enlightenment, these heavy words that 
if you're smart, you're going to be hesitant to use. But how those words themselves are a process, or rather those words represent a process. So it's not like I'm opposed to processes, because I think this entire thing we're participating in is a process. So I'm not, when I say like science is simply a process, I'm not doing that to discredit it. I'm just trying to put it in perspective and to remind myself as well as anybody who might hear this or talk to me, but I'm trying to remind myself first and foremost that science is a process, but you don't want that process to distract from the thing that it's actually trying to observe, from the thing that it's trying to interact with in some way. So there's actually a lot more value to seeing science as a process rather than an institution, rather than an entity, rather than a goal unto itself. Because there is no goal. There is no actual goal to honest scientific inquiry. There's no goal. There's nothing that you're trying to do. And of course people are. I mean, of course there are people who are trying to do things. They have a specific goal. But I would say the process itself has no goal. And as a result, you know, you don't want to, I don't know, it, it's, it's like uh, people who spend a lot of time thinking about what is God? Well, what does he look like? If you think, oh, oh, so God is, plays a role in your life? Tell me what he looks like then. You know, you can get into that way of thinking. But when, I, when it comes down to the institutionalization of these processes, I, I think the institutional—rather, I think the institutionalization of these processes is inevitable. Civilization depends on it, really. It depends on us institutionalizing these processes. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why we see religion— where we see re- organized religion, that's the institutionalization of a process. And you can see in that example where people completely forget it's a process. People start thinking in terms of goals. They start thinking in terms of absolute right and wrong. And they start branding things. Anything that doesn't line up with that gets branded a certain way. And so you can see where the institutionalization of science is very similar. Where it becomes much more focused on specific goals. Rather than describing, it starts to explain. And it, of course, brands things that don't fit into its parameters, parameters that have been assigned by specific human beings, 
parameters that, that have been created by the institution. Like anything that doesn't fit within those parameters will get called pseudoscience. And that's why I don't like, I don't like when spiritual subject matter, when people try to integrate it too much into the sciences. And I've read so many books, I've listened to so many lectures, you know, interviews over the years where someone is, let's just say, interested in ESP. They're interested in psychic phenomena, which I feel like if you've been around long enough and paid enough attention, you're going to have some experiences experiences with that. You're going to have some experiences of psychic phenomena. But it's interesting how your beliefs will color that, where a Christian who experiences synchronicity will interpret it as God communicating with them. Somebody who's part of the cult of science will experience a synchronicity and immediately rationalize it, immediately explain it. They'll say, oh, it was just statistical probability. There's a certain probability that somebody could bring up the same thing to me earlier in the day that somebody else is going to bring up later and that I'm also going to see mentioned on a game show. Even though it's an obscure reference that there's no obvious reason for anyone to bring up, I'm going to experience it multiple times today. But there's a statistical probability. There's a statistical probability that allows that to happen. So that's one explanation where it's to rationalize it in terms that the institution understands, that the institution created, really. And you can see that done with religion as well, where it's like we're going to explain this phenomenon using our system. But I personally, I try not to focus too much on the explanation. And psychic phenomena, synchronicity, I think they're better left unexplained. Because simply experiencing them is enough. Just taking them as they are. Just saying, that's cool. And if there's any more to it than that, well, I guess you'll figure it out. But simply saying, oh, interesting. Interesting that that happened. But what I was getting at is you'll see people who study psychic phenomenon, and they want nothing more than to be legitimized by mainstream institutions. Like there's a guy, Dean Radin, who does pretty extensive psychic research. I've always found him very rational and and intelligent. I've enjoyed what he has to say. His observations are interesting. But beyond that, I'm always kind of like, eh, you know, I guess it's kind of cool that you've devoted yourself to this, but I I feel like you're trying to get attention from a woman who doesn't want you. Like when someone takes otherwise, what could be described otherwise as spiritual phenomena, supernatural phenomena, when someone takes those things, basically things that aren't easily reproduced. Things that can't easily be reproduced or fit inside of an existing pattern. There's a tendency to take those and to to be like, okay, well, if we can't explain this using our system, 
we're going to give it a certain name, a pejorative name, and put it off to the side. And you see guys like like Dr. Dean Radin, where it seems like he really wants to be acknowledged by that hot girl. He really wants science to finally go, you know what? You've proven to us that these phenomenon really happen, and you can reproduce them, you can explain them. He's looking for that. He's looking for that validation. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming a whole lot about someone I don't, I don't know much about. <laughs> but, you know, my experience listening to him, listening to people like him. I mean, I read a book a few months ago that was honestly too new agey for me. It dealt, you know, anytime someone delves into like near-death experiences and channeling dead celebrities, it's a little too far off for me. I'll, I'll take it at face value and just see if I learn something from it, but it, it doesn't speak to me. But in reading that book, you know, it's, it's the woman who channeled Princess Diana's ghost, things like that. You could tell throughout the book where she would like talk to these people who have some sort of research institute where they're trying to figure these things out. They're trying to understand psychic and spiritual phenomenon, phenomena in scientific terms. And to me, it's just like you're looking in the wrong place. You know, you're looking in the wrong place for validation. And I'm not out to tell anybody else what to do, but it always like brings things down a notch when someone's like, and then we met with this specialist who told us that these things do happen. And and we've noticed that when, I mean, it goes back to meditation as well. I know I've brought this up before, but it's like, you'll come across this. I've read books by, you know, Buddhist monks before who are like, and then we hooked the brain up to, uh, you know, this, uh, this machine. And we found that when the monks enter a deep state of meditation, the neurons, their brain change. We notice that their brain chemistry changes when they enter a deep state of meditation. And it's like, you're part of a culture that has been practicing meditation. I mean, as long as there's documented history. Why do you need to appeal to the sciences? I understand that there's a certain sort of person out there who's going to read that and be impressed. There's a certain sort of person out there who won't take meditation seriously unless you explain it in, you know, some sort of scientific term, unless you can like break it down in scientific terms and tell them what the machine said about the monk's brain. You understand there's a certain sort of person who won't give things the time of day unless the science backs it up. I understand that. But I also am wondering if you're trying to appeal to the wrong person. Because why do Buddhist monks, you know, why do they need to appeal to a scientific thinker? You know, why do they need to explain the, the, the process of Buddhism? I mean, you want to talk about processes. Why, why is there a need to explain that process in scientific terms, especially a time-honored process. Maybe because it's interesting to some people. And that's sort of a platform that some monks have. There are some authors and speakers, and their platform is like, I'm a Buddhist monk, but I'm really into math. I'm really into psychology. I'm really into studying what's going on inside of the brain while these things are happening. And I see that, and it comes across to me like novelty. It's like the novelty of getting 
a machine to read a monk's brain while he meditates. That just seems like novelty to me. It seems like an opportunity for people who are interested in Buddhism to say, oh, hey, look, we're not at odds with the modern world. We're not at odds with the god of science. And I just wish people didn't have to appeal to that. Because that seems to be what it is in a lot of cases. It seems like people are trying to appeal to that audience, to that system, to those institutions. And I actually think we need to take a step away from those institutions. But not the method itself. And that gets back to what I'm talking about here, where we can take a step away from scientific institutions or the greater institution of science. Because I would say the whole idea of science is, as we talk about it, is not just made up of a bunch of smaller institutions who think their own thoughts. The greater institution of science is responsible in many ways for what I'm talking about. And of course, the greater institution is made up of these smaller components, but still, the institution itself of science as a whole, in my opinion at least, is responsible for everything I'm talking about here. And uh, just one sec. Um, And I think we can get the we can strip the process away from the institution and still get the benefits from that process or take a wait and see approach. Because, I mean, I always have that philosophy of like, what if we stop messing with everything for just a minute? What if we stopped messing with our natural reality for just a minute? Keep the hospitals open. But let's keep all the, let's, let's just stop messing with things for just a minute. People wouldn't be able to do it, though. You know, people, human beings, I don't believe would be able to just stop everything. And I think the last year proved that. Coronavi was the ultimate opportunity to do that. But you can see where people doubled down. Where everything became institutionalized even further. The things that were already institutionalized became even more deeply entrenched. They got glued down to their foundation a little more. And it seems like people are trying to mess with things now more than ever. But you can separate the institution from the process. And that's what a lot of people say when they're like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious. What someone is saying, even though that's become a cliche and it gets made fun of all the time, for no good reason, really. I mean, there's no good reason beyond the fact that it's become a cliche. And as I often point out, cliches aren't wrong. A lot of cliches are true, which is how they become cliches. But hearing them too often or from the wrong person often makes you reject them. But with the the idea of, I'm spiritual but not religious. I mean, what that person is trying to communicate is 
I'm engaged by the process, but not the institution, the institutionalization of that process. And I think it's very similar with the sciences. It's like being like, I'm scientific, but not, to, I, don't, I don't know the right way to say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, but not scientific. Sounds like a weird gay come on. I'm curious, but not scientific. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's kind of separating the process from the institution. And it's something you need to do in every possible way that you can. You need to. You have to. You must. No, I think it's a good idea. As an exercise, if nothing else. I think it's a good exercise. You know, I mean, in the same way that, like, money gets associated with all this evil. Money is a process, too. Currency is a process. And it's... That process plays out when you exchange it for something else. When you save it, for that matter. It's not just the act of spending money. It's also the act of saving money is part of that process. But we don't tend to think of it that way. And so separating the process from the institution whenever and wherever you can. Because a lot of people think that... A lot of people think that the institutions they don't like were created for some nefarious end. It goes back to the Zbigniew Brzezinski quote that I like so much, you know, of, you know, chaos uh, or history isn't so much the product of chaos as conspiracy. History is more the, the product of chaos than conspiracy. Sorry, is what it is. History is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And so you can see where institutions or the institutionalization of something. Because when I say institutions, I'm not just talking about an institution with a building and a name. I'm talking about the institutionalization of an idea or a process. And when something becomes institutionalized, we have a tendency, one, to take it for granted. And we think that's just, it's always been that way. And we need it. We need it. We need NASA. Otherwise, without NASA, we, you know, we, space wouldn't even exist. We couldn't look into space. We wouldn't have names for those planets. The planets wouldn't even have names if it weren't for NASA. Well, they would. They would have names, but they might have, we might all have different names for them. If we were all left to our own devices to name planets, which turns out is what we were doing for countless years before globalization and modernization. Uh, but, you know, we just have to figure things out for ourselves. We need these institutions. But then there's the other side of it, which is like you demonize institutions. Where this institution was created just to make our lives worse. And I don't think it's necessarily either one. But you should question something once it's become institutionalized. Because you might realize that you don't need it. You might realize that space doesn't depend on NASA in any way. Space doesn't depend on NASA. It doesn't. You don't need NASA 
to think about, to experience space. Yeah, you might need NASA if you want to hop into a rocket and go to the moon. You might need NASA to get high-powered telescopic photos of things that look like a tiny dot in your night sky, things that you can't even see in your night sky. But is NASA truly responsible? Like, without NASA, would we not have those? Maybe. Maybe another country's space program would offer it up. I don't know. But just the idea that you can't possibly appreciate space, you can't possibly understand or try to understand our species as this tiny, super-aware creature who thinks about everything out there in the great beyond that we can't possibly comprehend. Do you need NASA, though, to have a relationship with that? Do you need NASA to appreciate a night sky? No, you don't. And do we need NASA more than we need certain humanitarian programs? Probably not. Does that mean I'm anti-NASA? Anti-NASA? I'd like to call myself anti-NASA, just that reactionary uh, rebel in me. That person who pointlessly opposes so many things would love to say that I'm anti-NASA. And nobody would know what I'm saying. Nasser? What the heck is Nasser? Anti-Nasser. He's an anti-Nasser. You heard of anti-vaxxers. Well, I'm an anti-Nasser. No, there's a part of me that I kind of like, like the rebel in me likes giving pushback. The rebel in me likes saying, like, do we even need Nasser? But the truth is we don't. And that's just the institutionalization of science. And I mean, going back to those guys being, I have to pause this real quick. All right, yeah, occasionally we pause, but we never edit. We'll pause, but not edit. And there's nothing wrong with a good pause. A good pause is, is, is a, it's a process, blah, blah, blah. No, I was, I was losing steam. It was a good thing I had to stop for a second so I can close this out with a little momentum. Because I do notice that, and I notice this from people I know, people I like. It's not an indictment of anybody's character, but just this idea of like, thanks, science. It's like you, you lifted up a cup. Yeah, but science explained to me that I'm using my tendons and blah, 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 the bones in my arm, without the bones in my arm and the, the blood in my veins and my fingers, the tendons in my arms that allow my fingers to do what they need to do to pick this up. It's like, yeah, science explained to you, or maybe at best described, what your hand is doing. But how can you thank science because you picked up your cup? And that's the sort of logic I see playing out, where it's like, thank you, science. It's like you're thanking science for something that your body does naturally. Just because it tried to explain to you or describe to you what it is that is going on inside of you when you do that doesn't change the fact that you are doing that, that you can do that, 
And then the other side of that, which I hadn't even gotten into today, which is just that science is part of this sort of extortion scheme that says, hey, uh, the world's gotten really polluted. The world's gotten really unsafe. It's getting a lot hotter. You notice how hot the world is getting? You notice that uh, our streams and our lakes are filled with dangerous chemicals? Yeah, it's looking a little smoggy out, isn't it? That's why you need me. That's why you need me. I'm a scientist, baby. We're working to get rid of the smog. We're, We're working to slow down climate change. We're working on it, baby. We're working on it. And then you ask, well, where did all that stuff come from? I understand you're telling me that only scientists can clean our world up. Only scientists can stop our world from turning into a a flaming piece of coal. I understand that. And maybe that's true. Maybe you are the only one who can help us out of this situation. But how did we get here? Where did these chemicals come from? Where did this smog come from? Where did uh, the automobiles running on their gasoline, where did they come from? Who developed these? Who, You know, I understand that, yeah, it was made in a factory. Oh, it's these big corporations. Oh, it's these gas corporations spilling oil out into the, in the Gulf. Spilling their oil. It's all their fault. Where did they get the ability to do that? At some point, all of these things come from the scientific method. All of these things come from manipulating the world around us. You can wash your hands of how they use it. You can say, oh, well, we we noble scientists, we didn't mean for them to use it that way. Hey, we developed, uh, you know, we developed Zyklon B. To kill animals, to kill insects. We didn't mean for Hitler to use it on people. And I would agree, like, the, the, the people who develop pesticides, the people who develop some sort of, you know, lethal gas to kill rodents or insects shouldn't bear responsibility for some authoritarian leader using it on human beings. You know, they shouldn't be considered responsible. But that's sort of the issue when you start manipulating the world around you. Is that you never know how something is going to be used or what it's going to be used for. And that's the funny thing about science where it does become this sort of mafia protection scheme Where it's like, we created all of this through the scientific method, through scientific inquiry. We manipulated the world in such a way that allowed other people to start corporations that spill this shit out into the environment. They spill this shit out in the environment. You know, you you might not bear direct responsibility for that, but you were part of it. And now you're saying you're going to save us from the thing that you actually played a role in creating. And that's something that sort of bothers me, is this idea of taking credit for all of the 
net goods, the net positives, science is like, well, hey, you know, without us, you wouldn't, uh, without us, you wouldn't uh, survive coronavi. And as it's looking like coronavi was made in a lab, you know, it's one of the theories that for whatever reason you weren't allowed to talk about, but now more and more people are starting to entertain the possibility. What better example is there than that? We developed coronavi. Now we got to save you from coronavi. And you can say, yeah, it's not necessarily the same people. But they've linked themselves by being part of the scientific institution. Yeah, let's say, let's just, let's just, I don't know. I, I have no dog in the race. I honestly, I, I honestly couldn't care less if coronavi was made in a laboratory. I couldn't care less. It seems like one possibility. There's certainly reason to suspect that that might be one way that it developed. I don't think there's any controversy in saying that, or at least there shouldn't be. And so it's not necessarily that the same people who were working in the Wuhan lab, it's not necessarily that those people turned around and said, we're going we're gonna to be the ones that save you. But it is people who are participating in that process. It is people who are involved in the same or similar institutions who turned around and said, you need us to save you from coronavirus. Meanwhile, it looks like you are the people who created it. You created the problem. So at the very least, yeah, you should solve it. But maybe we should start looking into the fact that you create these problems. Maybe we should start looking into the fact that so many of the things that you claim to be saving us from, or or these things that you claim to want to save us from, are situations we wouldn't be in without that attachment to science without that obsession with the scientific process of meddling with everything. And we want nothing more than for those institutions to be even more powerful. We want nothing more than for those institutions to mess with life even more. So there's something pathological in it for me, to me. And it does come across like a protection racket. We're going to keep messing with the earth in ways that are potentially catastrophic. Even if they seem small at the time. I mean, let's say coronavirus started in a lab. Oh, we're studying this strange virus that's capable of adapting and mutating. And it attacks very specific parts of someone's body. Yeah, we'll keep it safe. We'll keep it locked up in this here laboratory. No real big deal. You never would have heard about it otherwise. We're doing similar things in laboratories across the entire world. But this one gets out. This one leaks. And it has a a catastrophic impact mentally, physically. Where did it come from? If science is going to take responsibility for solving the issue... Who gets the blame for the actual issue? And it's funny to me that people got the blame. We've spent the last year and a half with people themselves getting called grandma killers, 
Oh, you don't want to wear a mask? Good luck killing you. Oh, you're going to, so you want to kill my grandma, huh? You know, this stupid line of logic that people have. So pretty much all this blame that should be placed on institutions was placed on people during the last year and a half. You were essentially being blamed for killing people. If you went somewhere without a mask, if you didn't follow whatever the precautions of the day told you. Oh, so you're a killer, huh? You're getting accused of doing the worst possible thing. But yet nobody would accuse scientific institutions of that. Nobody would accuse scientific institutions who meddle with our very nature. Nobody accuses them of deliberately killing people, deliberately hurting people, deliberately poisoning the environment, because we all kind of understand that that's just a possible byproduct and they can't control everything. What they can control is the initial meddling, the initial need to mess with things, to change our reality. That's what people could change. But we're in this mode, we're raised in this society that tells you this is one of the highest honors you can have. One of the highest honors you can have in our society is to be a scientist, which has become this sort of clerical role. The experts, they're a higher power than you. They're a higher authority. And they do have, they have the ability, an expert has the ability to condemn you. They have the ability to say that what that person thinks is wrong. And that's a lot of power. The fact that scientific institutions have the ability to call you not just intellectually wrong, but they have the ability to call you morally wrong. They have the ability to condemn you. Even though the institution they're part of is one that, at least in theory recognizes the endless and inevitable change that is going on in everything and everyone at every moment. But yet it's also the thing that's condemning you for being wrong. And in doing that, they're saying that unless you change, you can't possibly be right. I mean, it does sound very religious, and I'm trying to avoid those comparisons because they're so obvious and I hear them so often. That doesn't make them less true, though. Our relationship to science has become very religious. Maybe it always was. You know, I mentioned that important figures in the Catholic Church were scientists. Shaman. There's always been a relationship between religion, spirituality, and science, as there should be. Those things should be closely coupled. You know, those things should be close together. But it is interesting that this thing that is dedicated to an endlessly unfolding, evolving, changing process, and that requires a constantly changing, adaptive approach to dealing with it is so quick to condemn people. It's so quick to tell people they're wrong. 
either because they have antiquated scientific knowledge or because they have scientific knowledge that hasn't been yet confirmed. And I'm not even suggesting that we do anything. I think that's an important part of this for me is I'm not even saying we should do anything. I'm not even saying we should cut funding. But I think we can do that mentally. Because we fund things mentally. We fund institutions by following them. By treating them like they're infallible. And in the case of science, I believe we have to separate the institution from the process, but not give the process a pass either, because we can see what happens with that process. Yeah, it leads to life-saving medicine. It also leads to chemicals getting dumped into rivers, destroying environments. Science has as much responsibility for one as it does the other, because if you want to define science, if you want to break science to its simplest definition, I would just say it involves observing shit and messing with shit. And if you just apply that to any aspect of your life, you know that the more you start messing with shit, the more bad things can potentially happen. But like any risk, sometimes you do it because there is a a net positive. There is a gain to be made. But I think we can stop funding these institutions by not just strictly following everything they do and say, by not letting them be the normal. And that doesn't mean taking money away from them financially. It doesn't mean destroying those institutions outright. Because with few exceptions, I don't really believe in destroying anything completely. But I think you can use your own level of um, discernment to give these institutions less power, for one. Because it is incredible that with all the things we vote on, important and unimportant, like you go through a voter pamphlet and you see that like, half the things you're voting on are completely irrelevant to you and everyone for that matter. Like, oh, we're going to vote on whether or not we're going to turn the old abandoned lot on 5th Street into a park with a fountain. Oh, it's so important. That's the most important thing we could ever vote on. Let's turn the abandoned lot into a park with a fountain. Not saying that's not important. Of course it is. On a local community level, aesthetics matter. But it's funny that we don't vote on larger issues. Like we don't vote on like, hey, should our scientists be allowed to mess with this? Hey, should should we allow our scientists to meddle in this natural process and potentially screw it up should we allow scientists to mess around with contagious diseases in a laboratory how come we don't vote on things like that 
because that's not where our power goes. These institutions are so much more powerful than we as citizens are that we have no control over what they, they mess with, even though it impacts all of us. And I do have a problem with that. I absolutely do. So my response is to not give them anything mentally. To not give them one encouragement, but to also not just go along for the ride either. Because I don't feel that scientific institutions are necessarily working in my interest or anyone's interests or the interest of the planet. Sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they're interesting. Sometimes they provide interesting details. Sometimes they also just confirm what we already knew and spend millions of dollars doing that. Like when they hook up a machine to a monk's brain while he's meditating and find out that there's a change. Why do the monks need that? And why does anybody need that? Why does anybody need to know that? Oh, we found out that people haven't been lying for thousands of years. We found out that people in Tibet and Asia haven't been lying about meditation because we found out that the neurons in their brain change when they meditate. It's that sort of thing. Or finding out that crows have consciousness. Oh, scientists discovered in 2021 that crows have consciousness. Great. Now you know something that every single pagan civilization knew. And it only took you millions and billions of dollars that you could have given to starving people. Oh, we sent, uh, you know, we sent uh, a, a rover to Mars so that we could see the surface of Mars, which is fascinating. I love looking at surface pictures of Mars. I love seeing like pictures of from the Mars rover. I think it's genuinely interesting. Is that more important than spending that money elsewhere? I don't know. I would argue that we should probably spend that money elsewhere. Just how I feel. But it seems like we have very little say. It seems like we're not voting on those. I mean, that to me should be equal to voting for president. People put all this stock in, oh, hey, we're, we're going to vote for president so that this guy can be a figurehead for four years. How come we're not voting on whether or not NASA launches something to Mars? Why aren't we voting on that? That seems more important than who's president for four years. And I understand you could say that like, oh, by voting for politicians and voting for other people, they're gonna, he's going to appoint somebody to head of the space program. And it does, there is a, it does have an impact. The people you vote into power do have influence over these institutions, but not really. Not completely. I feel that there should be far more citizen influence on the decisions that's a program like NASA takes. You know, the decisions that a program like NASA makes. 
we should all have some say on that. And it speaks volumes to me that we don't. But then in turn, we are forced to follow every word, follow every rule that they throw our way. So, clearly another anti-science episode. Clearly I hate science, because that's what they do to you too. They turn around, if you have any criticism of scientific institutions... If you have any skepticism toward a science-based view of the world, you get accused of being anti-science. You get treated as if you're a religious fundamentalist. You're seen as stupid because simply being interested in science makes you smart. Which is what a lot of people are trying to signal. There are so many people who are like, me, I'm into science. See, well, I'm a science, I'm a man of science. Oh, I see, I, I choose to see the world through a scientific lens. When people say shit like that, or when they just do the whole like, science, good, religion, bad. When people just get on that kick, What they're trying to say is, I'm smart. I'm smart. I read CNN's science section. I read read things about what Elon Musk is doing. Did you know I'm smart? And it's funny that being interested in something becomes this way of communicating that you're intelligent. Which you realize a lot of people are trying to do. You go through life and a lot of people, beyond trying to be attractive or trying to be cool, there's a lot of people out there who are like, I want people to think I'm smart. I want people to know I'm smart. And an easy way to communicate that is to be like, I was reading the scientific journal the other day and they found out that crows have consciousness. Crows have consciousness. It's a way of telling people you're smart. I went on a date. I went on an OkCupid date probably like six, seven years ago with a woman. She was older than I was, really tall. And she worked as a stripper, but she was really into science. And she referred to football as sports ball. I don't watch sports ball. She was cool. I liked her. I only went out with her once, I think. And... uh, I liked her. She was cool. But, it, you know, that whole, like, I'm into science. I'm a stripper who's into science. <laughs> I like my, my, uh, I like how I go from, she was cool. She was, she was a nice, a nice woman. And then I, I go to, like, her whole shtick was she was a stripper who's into science. But in my experience, that's sort of what people are trying to communicate when they just tell you right off the bat they're into science. I didn't find it off-putting, but it was just, that was what she's into. And I feel like it's a way of saying, I'm smart. You know I'm smart, right? Smart, right? You know I'm smart, right? I feel like that's what a lot of people are trying to communicate when they broadcast their devotion to the scientific institution. 
because being interested in science is one of those few interests out there that make people think you're smart when you're not. Or rather, you know, it makes people think you're smart when, when it has no relationship to your intelligence, no direct relationship. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain, it takes a certain cognitive ability to understand the ideas and the concepts. And I'll readily admit a lot of that stuff is way beyond me. But it's funny to me that simply being interested in something makes people think that you're smarter than you are. And so you can see where people are invested in the institution of science for all kinds of reasons. There are a lot of people out there where if society suddenly started devaluing the scientific institution, not necessarily the process, again, because I don't think the scientific process ends. Even if you change the name of it, even if you stop calling it science, that approach to understanding the world that approach to understanding components of our world. That won't go anywhere. It doesn't matter what you call it. Science is a placeholder word, and that process of the scientific method is going to play out no matter what. But if you took away the scientific institution, you would suddenly have a lot of people who are going to have to get really creative. They're going to have to find new and creative ways to let people know how smart they are because suddenly they can't rely on scientific dogma. And that would be very interesting to see. It'd be very interesting to see people's wheels start spinning, trying to figure out how do I let people know that I'm a smart, righteous person? If I can't fall back on scientific dogma in every conversation. Well, you can start trying to do that now. See what happens. Do it now and see what happens. Start thinking about your relationship to space without NASA being involved. You don't need NASA to have a relationship to space. Your relationship to space is exactly the same whether NASA is the middleman or something or somebody else is. So go straight to the source, dude. Go straight. You know, your, your relationship to space should be between you and space. And just because NASA gives you cool data, cool data, just because they give you amazing pictures that really put your life into context as a puny little pebble on the beach of life. <laughs> you don't actually need them. You don't actually need them to have a relationship to the universe. And that should be both liberating and scary because the universe is both of those things. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun 
dreams I see a land where children can run free so take